The Future by Stéphane Molyneux Chapter 24 I wake up suddenly and feel wretched nausea churning through my innards. God, I haven't thought of my headless friend in decades. Why is he haunting the carved channels of my memory now? The figure to my left has moved closer. I can't tell in the gloom whether Jane has moved her chair or is just leaning forward, her dark hair hanging over her eyes like a black awning. What kind of insanity is this? The chill, the nausea. It's because I have just experienced a complete reversal of everything that is human. The waking world is supposed to be sane. Dreams are the toxicity release of nightly madness. But I fell asleep. Here. It feels that way. At least, I've really no idea what's going on anymore. And I walked through perfectly lucid memories, resurrected in my mind with electric clarity. Nothing went awry. No physics were violated. Everything and everyone came back to life, as if they were a movie briefly paused for a snack break. Gerhardt stayed ostracized. My friend stayed dead. Jane stayed dead. My waking life is madness. Dreams are my only sanity. Jane has been waiting for me in this room for decades. Everything I took from her, she will now take from me. And not for a week or a month, but for eternity. <sighs> you run from the lessons of your youth, then spend forever in regret for what you failed to learn. But would... Jane want to punish me? When I think of those who wronged me in the past, I don't feel much anger, some frustration that I lost at the game of life in part, but not real anger, because, because, because Jane was pure. Pure? The hell does that mean? I interrogate the alien voice. I get another deep spinal chill remembering that the voice exists in both my waking and my dream life. It can pass between the barriers of madness and sanity. Unless my waking world is now the hell of walking through my history, helpless to change it. And when I fall asleep, I end up in this little room with the dead girl of my doing. I try to move my arms. It is a violent attempt, but they barely seem to twitch. Jane slowly raises her head. I stare straight up, then close my eyes, hoping that she imagines that I have drifted off back to sleep, the sleep where she is alive again in her youth before her step, her fall. Jane clears her throat, and it sounds... 
too deep, too, too guttural, almost like a hint of a man's voice. And then a tear escapes my left eye as I remember that she hung herself and is trying to speak through a broken neck. Welcome back, she says, again in a gravelly, masculine voice. The light in the room, I can't find the source, brightens slightly. Can a man cry in his sleep? Deep anger grips me at the idea of running from the dead. If she has power in the afterlife, then so do I. I open my eyes, turn my head, and see, and see. Jane lifts her head, pulls her hair back, and, and it is not Jane at all, but a man with a black beard. Something faint is deep screaming in my ears as the man, did Jane have a brother? Puts his hand on my left arm over the covers, and I am wildly relieved to feel the pressure of his palm. You made it, the man says gently. We welcome you. Where? Where am I? I whisper and feel another flood of relief that my voice seems to work. The man says, I have no idea how to answer that. You are not dead. You are where you paid to be. What? The man nods slowly. Your name is Lewis Staten. You have recovered from a serious illness and and you've been out for some time. I'm not a doctor, just someone watching over you. I have memories of cheesy movies where men wake from comas and always ask the same question. I will not conform. Uh, But then I do. How long have I been out? The man stares at me for a moment. It's been a while. Let's take this one step at a time. (laughs) Literally. What do you remember last before... The man gestures at the room. I swallow painfully. The man lifts a cup and gives me a sip of ice water. I I can mostly remember my, my childhood, my youth, and the word, was I the president? The man seems oddly relieved and nods vigorously. You were, you were the president. I feel anger again. Then I still am. You were never a former president. That is true, my my apologies, said the man. And I find the phrasing annoying. He didn't say that he apologizes, only that his apologies exist somewhere. I want... I want to see my wife, my children. Why, Why are they not here? The bearded man purses his lips. Even with so, so long to consider your questions, which are, which are perfectly sensible and totally predictable. We need to establish your physical health before anything else. You are clear of the heart disease. I know that for sure. Heart disease? A vague memory swims at the edge of my mind like a shy shark. A bald doctor. His wrinkles end where his hair used to be, telling me that there is... Nothing more to be done, that I can be made comfortable, but that there are still options which confused me and and, and confuses me now. 
I feel I feel disoriented, but but all right. Why can't I move my toes? Oh, sorry. The man made a gesture and feeling came flooding back to my extremities. I cry out with a sudden sensation. I'm, I'm doing this very badly. I'm so sorry, says the man half standing. Let, let me get your family. My heart pounds in my chest, reminding me of that raging night with my friend on the dirt bike. And I remember being afraid of my heartbeat in the past near the end. The full body sensation overwhelms me and I Dark. My eyes opened at the same time as my door, the white door that leads to wherever. My wife strides into the room, her handkerchief covering her mouth. Chapter 25 Alice's mentor was so ancient that it came to no one's surprise whatsoever that his name was Adam. Shortly after her confinement at the top of Smudge Mountain and the resulting media firestorm that accompanied such a radically unusual occurrence, Alice decided what to do with her life. She made an appointment with Adam, who lived in a cave. A cave with many modern amenities, but still a cave. Adam loved the law, like many philosophers, because it's the practical engineering of abstract reason. Words made flesh and fist and hated Plato so much that he actually went to live in a cave. It had high ceilings and endless bookshelves and could be sealed from the outside and cooled in the summer. And Adam had installed a fire which cast the shadows of hung shapes against the dark recesses of the cave, which he stared at while writing to thumb his nose at the ancient Athenian totalitarian. Adam had written the basic law, which was the template for most ERO contracts. He had completed it at the age of 55, which seemed young for such a feat. But he argued that things seem endlessly complicated when you're young and also when you're old. But there is a time of luminous clarity at the peak of middle age when the world is written in universal laws, not petty specific details. He only took in-person visits. So Alice went out early one morning. He boiled some mint tea and welcomed her. Adam, I think I have found my bliss, she said without preamble. He nodded slowly. As a wizened old elder, I feel obligated, although it is kind of a cliché, to tell you that you never just think you have found your bliss. You know. You knew? Mentoring? Oh, yes. Although when I was a kid, it was called teaching, but that word got into such disrepute, we couldn't use it ever again. How old are you? A hundred and forty. Alice whistled. Not just because she felt she had to, but because she wanted to show off a recently acquired skill. So, you remember the cataclysms? His face seemed to go slack, losing all animation. I do. I am one of the few. Why are kids not supposed to ask about those, that, whatever they are? Adam shrugged. You are smart enough to know. 
That is an unfair question. Alice nodded. You know, that just makes kids more curious, right? We know. There was a pause. Something skittered outside the cave opening, and Alice deeply inhaled the relaxing scent of the mint tea. Adam said, Your bliss. Alice jumped up, as if electrified. She paced back and forth, her hands gesticulating. You know, I kind of got touched by the old world in a way. I never felt it vividly. Of course, I can't. I'm too young. But now I feel like like an archaeologist studying some ancient civilization and the people who were dust come back to life or, or something like that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not putting it very well, but... Alice took a deep breath. She knew that it was considered extraordinarily rude to interrupt a child, so she felt in no rush to collect her thoughts. Ah, oh, I had this all worked out of my head, but now that I'm talking about it, my thoughts are like a bunch of startled birds. I want to know about the law. I know we don't have that anymore. My, my, my dad has explained some of it to me. But I want to know about the old law. The history of how things used to be. Tell me, Adam, do you think that we will ever forget how bad things were and go back? The old man paused. I'm not sure if that's a rhetorical question. Wasn't that always the way, though, in the past, that disaster would follow disaster and no one would ever learn anything for more than a generation or so? Adam nodded. Why didn't they learn anything? Why did it have to get so bad? They had books and flat movies and the hypernet internet. Adam murmured. Yes, sorry, internet. They had access to every slice and dice of information at their fingertips, but they learned nothing. I know that when I was taken on the mountain with Emily, that it was a piece of the past cutting into the present. But I can't shake the feeling that it could also be our future and and I've been researching some of these mm, cycles of history, uh, and I guess I'm kind of worried that we're just at the top of another cycle, and, and, and everything that was bad and, and old could become new and, and, and alive again. Adam nodded slowly. You are not alone in that fear. The philosophers who founded How We Live Now spent a lot of time thinking about how to avoid that kind of repetition. There was a big movement towards the end of the cataclysms, go back to the land and, and, and give up on civilization completely because people were so exhausted from civilization leading inevitably to brutality and barbarism. Why build a tower just to have history knock it down? What's the point of carving a whole civilization out of the brutal prehistory of the species just to have that prehistory become the future and swallow every city up whole? The Christians, in particular, had a mission to civilize the world as a whole to bring their universal values to every corner of the planet. But this caring about everyone was used against them. They wanted to help the helpless, so everyone pretended to be helpless to get resources, and the Christians tore their own arms off, trying to lift the world, so to speak. They didn't know enough. They knew just enough to make things worse, a constant problem in the past. Alice stared into her green cup. Old tendrils of historical air seemed to be leaching the heat from her fingers. Tell me about the law. You know about the few historical nations that remain. Well, the whole world was like that long ago. The land was divided into sections, and a tiny minority of people controlled the legal use of violence in those sections. 
Alice Blinks. The legal use of violence, but, but everyone has that. that that's self-defense. Adam shook his head, his hooded eyes dark. Oh no, precious child. This tiny group of people could initiate the use of force against their disarmed subjects. Initiate? echoed Alice, deep shock in her voice. Yes, that was the cycle. Rulers took money from people by force, more and more, every year. People were oppressed by their rulers, until the rulers took so much money that they destroyed the economy, or the people rose up and attacked them, or both. And then the people would claw back some of the power of the rulers, keeping more of their own money. And then the economy would start growing again. The wealth of the region would increase, and the rulers would start taking more and more money. But the people had so much wealth that they could afford to pay off the rulers to be left in peace. Until the rulers ended up taking too much money again, having too much power, controlling too many people. And then the collapse would begin all over again. And how did the law... How did the law do this? I don't know. If you've ever heard about fairy tales, old stories about magic, I've heard of them, but I've never heard one. Adam grunted, good thing too. Magic always means madness. And we have finally found how to live in a sane world. Magic was the idea that certain words, magic spells, could change reality, like summon fire, move items, create illusions, disguise people, all sorts of mad stuff. Experts in this magic were called wizards or sorcerers or or lawyers, as they were known later. Once upon a time, a wizard could put a curse on you, and you would have to give him money to remove that curse or keep it at bay. Later, people were threatened with hell and had to give priests money to stay out of it. When the scientific revolution happened and and people stopped believing in magic, the people who were wizards invented a new curse called the law. And you had to give them money, otherwise they would use the law, a kind of magic curse, to put you in prison, where unbelievably terrible things would happen to you. In other words, when people stopped believing in hell... The wizards had to become lawyers or politicians and create hell on earth so that their magic words could still get resources and obedience out of people. Alice shuddered. Sounds like a madhouse. Hey! cried Adam loudly, startling Alice. He pointed a wizened finger at her. Don't ever do that, please. Don't insult asylums. It's not madness. It wasn't a madhouse. That's like calling a zoo a madhouse for animals. No. It's just a place where the animals are caged so that the owners of the zoo can profit from them. Sorry about that, said Alice. You're right. It wasn't madness. But it's all very uh, abstract to me. Can you give me a real example? Sure. Let's start with... Adam frowned and... Alice could almost directly see the old man's brain sifting through the horrors of the past to provide something composed of lesser horrors to her waiting mind. Okay, uh, do you know what counterfeiting is? Alice shook her head. Adam got up to refill his tea. Okay, well, in the past, there was no Bitcoin, no blockchain. 
way back, gold was money, because gold is limited and valuable and can be used for more than one thing. Money, of course, but also jewelry and later industrial production, just like now. You can divide gold into smaller pieces and it doesn't lose value. You can also melt it and join it back together. You get the idea. But the rulers demanded to be paid in gold for most economic transactions. It was called a tax. Alice started. Wait, what? Every transaction? Sure. Alice gestured helplessly. What what, what does that mean? So, if you earned $1,000, you had to give 500 to the rulers or be thrown into one of their torture prisons. 500? Why? What value did they add? Well, they claimed to protect people's property rights. Alice snorted. How can they claim to protect property rights while forcing people to give them money? That's like a thief promising to keep your wallet safe by stealing it. Isn't that the wildest contradiction? Adam held up his hands. Listen, I'm happy to tell you these things, but you're going to have to check your outrage. You're looking for reason, morality, inconsistency. But we are in the realm of sorcery here, the blackest magic. Have you ever tried to figure out the physics of your nightly dreams? You can't. It's the wrong standard completely. I will get to why people accepted this, but first we have to understand what they were accepting. Okay? Good. A rather hypnotic clanking drifted through the air as Adam stirred his tea. Mm, Ten years ago, I wouldn't have forgotten what I was talking about, he murmured. The rulers stole gold from every transaction. Adam snapped his fingers. Right, thank you. So, the rulers took gold, kept a lot of it for themselves, and then handed out some to their friends and relatives, and the enforcers, of course. The enforcers were the citizens willing to initiate the use of force against their fellow citizens for money. Yes, I know, I know, outrageous, but that's most of human history. Almost all of it, uh, up until the last century or so. Alice frowned. I think I get it. I think I do. It's very strange, but I don't quite understand why it was so unstable. Adam interlaced his fingers and pressed the heels of his hands outward. Violence was never stable, Alice. Because the rulers didn't add any value, but rather were taking value away, they had to create the illusion of value. Otherwise, the citizens would be would get wise to the predation. So, what did they do? How do you pretend to add value when you're just taking it away? Alice stared blankly, shaking her head slowly. I don't... I, I have no idea. Create art? B- build things? Adam smiled a little sadly. It is actually testament to the beauty of the modern world that you have no idea how any of this worked. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to put mental quotes around that. Worked. All right. The rulers could add gold to the economy in many different ways. They could borrow gold from bankers or other rulers, or they could use less gold per coin so that they might get a 1,000 coins instead of 500 from the same amount of gold. But that's not adding any real value, right? Adam laughed. (laughs) Of course not. In fact, it's just another kind of stealing. 
It's hard for you to understand because the number of Satoshis and Bitcoins cannot be increased, and no one controls the entire financial system. But back then, he whistled, things were very different indeed. If you could somehow magically double the number of Bitcoins, what would happen to the price of everything? It would double, said Alice instantly. Adam snapped his fingers, pointing at her exactly. Perfect. That's the kind of economic instinct that everyone has, unless it's bullied and trained out of them. Yes, they inflate prices. However, it's perfect for the rulers. When they double the number of coins, they and their friends get to spend those coins at full value, while the people who get those coins later pay sometimes more than double for everything that used to be cheaper. Alice smiled with illumination. Oh, and, and, everyone would just blame the shopkeepers rather than the rulers. Adam nodded. Oh, yes, obviously. The rulers would also blame shopkeepers and threaten them for price gouging, which was another curse invented to cover up the rising prices that resulted from the inflation of the money supply, of the gold. Alice shook her head. But surely... (laughs) but surely people would figure this out quickly and and know what was going on. You would think so. You would think so now, for sure, because, well, for about a billion reasons. But this is what no one understood, really, until much more recently. The rulers didn't really rule over the people, the citizens, the working population. The rulers ruled over the children. Everything else, every other disaster, was just a long shadow cast by that initial violent control over the young. Alice blinked. I I don't know what you mean, Adam. The, The rulers raised the children? Adam shrugged sadly. It's hard to strangle a thousand individuals, but if you can give them one neck between them all, You only have to strangle one. Sorry, that was a little inappropriate and badly worded. He took a breath deep into his creaking lungs. The real enforcers were the teachers, which is why we don't use that word anymore. There was a word called curriculum, which was the plan of instruction that every teacher in the region had to follow, or lose his job, or her job, later on. Once the rulers could define everything that the children had to learn, millions and millions of children were all told the same lies. Alice jumped up, frustrated. But but kids are great at figuring out lies. You just told me that yourself when I knew what happened to the prices. Children are great at figuring out lies. They are original humans, blank slates, ungouged by the swords of the rulers. But even deeper than their capacity to detect falsehood is their need to bond with their parents. And it was that bond that was used to kill their capacity for honesty. Can you draw this out? Adam laughed. (laughs) No, (laughs) you will get it in a moment. Look, for most of human evolution, food was very scarce. And there was no easy way to control fertility, so... Women had a lot of children. Children who displeased their parents would inevitably get less food. 
and thus less likely to survive. Pleasing parents is absolutely necessary for survival, at least until puberty, when you get the ability to hunt for your own food. In other words, we imprint very strongly. The rulers know all about this and use it to control the population. They take money from the parents, by force of course, and use it to pay the teachers who lie to their children. The children get a sense of the lies, but if they push back against these lies, their parents get angry at them, partly because the parents were told the same lies, and partly because knowing the truth about an evil society can make you mad. But mostly because we evolved to please our parents. So we swallow the lies rather than stay honest. It's hard for children to imagine that their parents willingly and voluntarily hand them over to liars working for the rulers. The children grow up defending the lies, which means defending the liars, which means defending the parents. Anyone who questions the lies is actually questioning the loyalty the children have to their parents, which means undermining their very capacity to survive. Cornered animals fight to the death. Indoctrinated delusions do the same. When you raise children in unreality through violence, they become reactionary and hostile to the truth. The lies form a kind of immune system for their insanity, making it impervious to reason and evidence. (laughs) You, my dear, have been raised to honor and respect the truth, because we do things so differently in the here and now. But you are asking about the past, the lid of which I have opened. Alice's face was pale. It's like a horror movie that never ends. But it did, said Adam softly. It finally did. He shook off the imaginary spiderwebs of ancient history. But back to counterfeiting. The rulers pretended to add value to the economy by creating money out of thin air. This was called currency. It was, of course, perfectly legal. To put it another way, the law removed the curse called jail from the counterfeiting of the rulers. Ah, but if you were a citizen caught watering down the money, you were punished with jail or maiming. To be more clear, the law put a curse on one man for counterfeiting, but lifted that curse for another man who counterfeited, depending if he was a ruler or the rules. In fact, you might not believe me, but I swear that it's true, It could even be the same man, depending on whether he was a ruler or, if he left the ruling class, a citizen. You could wake up one day with the law keeping you safe, and the next day the law would kill you. How would would people know the law? Oh, well, that was the black beauty of it all. Ignorance of the law was no excuse But no one knew the law. Alice looked up, shocked. What do you mean? The the law must have been written down somewhere? Adam smiled grimly. Oh, 
it was. In fact, it was written down everywhere. The law was so lengthy, complicated, and convoluted that not one single person, not even the greatest expert in the law, knew the entirety of the law. He ticked off his fingers. There were laws for criminals, laws for businesses, laws for families, laws for taxation, another magic word to cover up the word theft, thousands and thousands of laws, some of which contradicted each other. And each of these laws had language that could be interpreted any number of ways, (laughs) by design, of course, so that people were fully responsible for knowing the unknowable and understanding that which could never be objectively explained. The law was simply a permission slip for the rulers to use violence. The law was an opinion with a gun. Alice swallowed. This must... This must have been known at the time. Except for a very few. It really wasn't. Adam spread his fingers and slowly spiraled his hands together. Everything which is centralized becomes corrupt. If you put power in the hands of a few people, those people will become corrupt. Or if they are somehow immune from corruption, they will be replaced by corrupt people who will cheat them out of the power the most corrupt always want. Competition in the free market is the only antidote to the entropy, the the inevitability of human corruption. This is why we can never, ever have only one DRO or only one curriculum or a central control of currency. Everything and everyone that is forcibly imposed on others degrades into rank corruption and evil. I mean, imagine if your father ran the only DRO... No, forget your father, at least in this example. Imagine that your worst enemy, one of the boys from Smudge Mountain, perhaps, had violent control over the only DRO allowed to exist. Imagine that he controlled all the currency and all the education of all the children and could create any rule he wanted and interpret those rules any way he wanted and paid millions of enforcers to point weapons at anyone who disagreed with him. Imagine what a terrible and delusional man-god he would turn into. Imagine how cold-hearted and cruel and inhuman he would become. Empathy is like a copper wire. Put too much power through it, it just breaks. The power to initiate violence destroys the soul, which means only the soulless want to use it. The old world was a giant invitation for evil to rule the good. Adam's eyes had grown feverish, intense. If everyone is good, you don't need rulers. If everyone is evil, you can't have rulers, because that guarantees the rule of evil. If the majority of people are evil, you can't have rulers, for the same reason. If the majority of people are good, you still can't have rulers, because only the evil will want to have power over the good, which eliminates people's capacity to be good, because you cannot be virtuous if you are ruled over by evildoers. There was... No possibility that human rule could lead to anything other 
than rank and bottomless evil. These rulers were contained by disaster and revolution for a time, but they always grew back, drew back their power over others, crushing freedom and productivity and virtue in their damn bloody fists. The only solution, the solution that was finally found, was the non-aggression principle, the ethics of universally preferable behavior, and the peaceful and rational raising of children. Tell me this, Alice. Have you ever wanted to violently rule over another human being? Alice shuddered. Of of course not. And the boys on the mountain? She paused. They did, yes. Adam nodded. Right. When society stopped ruling over children, we stopped raising children thirsty to rule over others. He snapped his bony fingers once more. We broke the cycle by accepting that no man or woman alive can handle power. We broke the cycle by convincing parents to stop ruling over their children and so feeding the power of the rulers who repeatedly destroyed humanity for the past tens of thousands of years. The solution was so simple that it took forever to realize. Alice considered his speech for a long while. I don't see how parenting creates tyranny. Not current parenting, said Adam. Why have you never had the desire to violently rule over another human being? Alice paused. It would be horrible. Why? If you rule over others, you can get a lot of resources. Money, food, the thrill of obedience. I can get my own resources, thank you very much. And I don't think... I don't think that seeing fear and and, and subjugation in someone else's eyes would be thrilling at all. It would be horrible. I would just imagine myself in their shoes, on, on their bended knees, right. Adam nodded in satisfaction. You know about painkillers, right? Yes, my grandfather had a back problem. He took opioids. Did he become addicted? Not to my knowledge. I don't think so. Right. Because he was raised well. Adam stood up and paced slowly around the fire like a strolling planet in a tiny solar system. I want you to imagine something. Imagine that mothers took a powerful and addictive drug during pregnancy and fed that drug to their babies, not just through breast milk, but directly. Then imagine that the children were locked up in schools that continued to feed them this addictive drug, and it was everywhere in their life, as teenagers, as adults. It could not be escaped. Adam paused. In these circumstances... Would you say that it was human nature to be addicted? Alice shook her head. No, no, of of course not. If it was natural, it, it wouldn't need to be inflicted from the outside. Adam nodded. If you took nomadic animals and put them in a small field surrounded by an electrified fence, and within a few generations the offspring of those animals no longer roamed, 
Would you then say that it was the nature of that animal to remain in one place? No. Right. Humanity was confined, controlled, brutalized for almost all of our evolution. And the purpose of all that trauma was to take away our humanity, to to push us from the path of our natural evolution. No, said Alice firmly. Adam smiled. Go on. She pursed her lips. If this trauma was common to all human evolution, then it was natural to us. But didn't you just say that if it was natural, it would not need to be externally applied? Alice cocked her head. It is natural for us to use violence on each other, I think. That's what the evidence you you were telling me clearly shows. Very good. Now we get to the essence of humanity, which is a very powerful thing. We will come back to the addicted babies, but let us talk now about justifications. Tell me, does the lion lecture the zebra before eating it? Alice smiled. I'm going to go with a big no on that. Adam narrowed his eyes. Are you sure? Doesn't the lion say to the zebra, It is moral for you to submit yourself to my appetite, and it would be very selfish for you to refuse to give your flesh to feed my little lion clubs. Only the most selfish and evil zebras would run away and force my lovely family to starve to death. Have a thought for creatures other than your own selves, my zebras, and surrender yourself to us. I must have missed that documentary. Adam smiled and spread his hands. Between the lion and the zebra, it is an open game. The lion chases, the zebra tries to escape, and whoever wins, wins. There is no need to justify either the chasing or the running. Adam poured another half cup of tea. As his passion grew, he started waving it around, hence the need to only fill it halfway. However... Human rulers feel a bottomless need to justify their power. Indeed, without that justification, ruling people is impossible. Everyone used to think that morality was invented because people were interested in being good. (laughs) And like most things in history, the exact opposite was the case. What was called morality was invented to control and subjugate human beings. Morality was defined as subjugation to virtue. And virtue was always defined as subjugation to the magic laws of the rulers. Being a good citizen always meant obeying the law. Adam paused, and Alice could see that it was taking him a moment to organize his thoughts, because there was so much to convey. As we are talking said Adam. Do you think you are getting any closer to seeing the modern version of the laws as your bliss? Alice nodded without hesitation. Adam closed his eyes, deep satisfaction radiating from his wizened face. Very well. Now I will initiate you into the mysteries of history. In the past was a massive contradiction in all human societies, which had to be skirted around and evaded in order for those societies to pretend to function, at least for a while. The contradiction was the rules inflicted on children versus 
the rules the rulers obeyed. What was expressly forbidden to the children was expressly encouraged for the rulers. Children were told not to hit, not to steal, and never to use violence to get what they want. But the rulers threatened citizens with endless violence for failure to comply with their magic laws. Children were told that it was deeply immoral to use violence, but the entire foundation of the entire society they lived in was based on violence. Taxation, regulation, laws of every kind. (laughs) Now, as you so wisely told me earlier, children have an amazing ability to detect lies, and in particular when they become teenagers, to detect hypocrisy. A mother, and it was usually mothers, sadly, would hit her son for hitting another child, yelling at her son that it was immoral to hit. Adam smiled grimly. It was quite a brain twister, I can tell you. Well, you can imagine. Parents would tell their children that it was immoral to use force to take money, and then would send them to schools which only existed because the rulers used force to take the money from the parents to pay for those schools. Teachers would tell children not to bully the very same teachers who were happy to have their fellow citizens sent to jail if they tried to avoid paying the teacher's salary. They were almost like a different species, murmured Alice, her eyes wide. I know what you mean, but try to avoid that kind of thinking. Remember the animal in the tiny enclosure, losing its natural self to electric fences. It's not a different species. It's just a punished and controlled animal. Okay. So, children in the past were given strict, objective, and universal moral values, the non-aggression principle, and a respect for property rights. And then they grew into and tried to live in a society that only existed due to its complete violation of the non-aggression principle and the respect for property rights. Some tea slopped over the side of Adam's cup. He didn't seem to notice. How is this achieved? How is this possible? Well, an unholy bargain. Adam shook his head slightly, then rose and started walking around the fire again. Sorry, that means a very evil bargain. Was struck between the rulers and the parents. The parents acted as agents for the rulers by training their children to be useful citizens, more obedient tax livestock, while the rulers encouraged the punishment of any adult children who awoke to the rank hypocrisy of their parents. Adam took a deep breath. I don't want you to think that this was conscious or or, or willed or subject to a modern moral analysis any more than we would blame a peasant 10,000 years ago for believing that the world was flat. Color rose in Alice's cheeks. I don't agree. In fact, I couldn't disagree more strongly. Yes? Alice rose in agitation. Well, it's one thing to talk about an ancient peasant who, who walked out on the world he felt was flat and, and saw as flat and had no scientific knowledge to think otherwise, but it's totally another thing, another thing entirely, to inflict universal morals on your children and then, and then punish them for following, for acting as if those universal morals were in fact universal. That would be like teaching your children that the world was round and, that, and then punishing them as adults for trying to navigate the world as if it were round. It's a, it's a, it's a self-contained hypocrisy, not a lack of knowledge or a narrowness of perspective. 
You don't need access to any outside information to know that you're contradicting yourself. When you rankly contradict yourself between being a parent and being a, what was it, a citizen? Adam nodded. Oh, no. They don't get off the hook. They don't get off that easy. Alice shuddered, struggling to find the words. You're literally standing over a child with your fist raised, punching us so horrible, punching your child while telling your child not to hit anyone, that hitting is totally immoral and wrong. That's a bubble. That, 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 that's an island. Oh, I don't know how to put this. But you, you don't need any outside information to know that you're contradicting yourself. Violently. Literally, in this case. I, I don't agree with this lack of judgment about the past. You, you, you're suggesting that we do for the parents what the rulers back then did for the parents. C- create excuses. C- create bubbles and, and, and reversals and, and eddies in the river of morality. Where time goes backwards and, and up is down and black is white. And No, I won't accept it. I won't accept it at all. Adam nodded slowly. That time on the mountain changed you. For the better, I think, said Alice fiercely. I don't disagree. Adam inhaled deeply through his nose. I'm not ignoring your argument, but I would like to continue with mine. We can circle back later. He tapped a forefinger to his temple. It's bookmarked. Alice did not sit down, and a similar planet joined the small solar system as she strode with Adam around the fire. Go on, she gesticulated. In many religions, the clerics had a similar bargain with parents. The parents had to deliver the children to the clerics to be educated in the religion. Why would they do that? Well, one main reason was because the clerics, in most religions, indoctrinated the children in the belief that disobeying parents was a great sin. Alice held up her hand, frowning. So, uh, disobedience to authority was, was, was a great evil? Adam smiled. Go on. Alice's brow furrowed, and her hands traced the air. Disobedience. uh, The parents use violence against the children while telling the children that that violence is immoral, which means that the parents have carved out or or created an exception to the rule that violence is immoral. Uh, In other words, uh, those in power, those in power, the rulers are exempt from the moral standards they inflict. No. It's even worse. It's even more... The rulers are in, char- in charge because they must do, or can do, the, the opposite of the moral rules they inflict. It is immoral for the child to hit, but it is not just permitted for the parent to hit, but it is moral for the parent to hit. The child must not hit, but the parent must hit m- morally. Uh, It is forbidden for the child to hit, but it is equally forbidden for the parent not to hit. The child must not take property without permission, but the parent can take the child's property without permission, just as the rulers can take the parent's property without permission. The child must not bully, uh, but historically, parenting was bullying. Despite the grimness of the topics, Adam laughed. (laughs) Now it is my turn to disagree because you are insulting bullies. Insulting bullies? When you were on Smudge Mountain with those boys, were they bullies? 
Yes, yes, I think so. Did they give you moral instruction? Alice thought long and hard. No. How did they exercise power? They were just bigger and, and willing to use violence. Oh, hence the illumination. Alice smacked a fist into her open palm. Bullies do not lecture. They, they, they just inflict. Bullies don't, don't justify. Alice pointed at him. Yes, yes, that's it. They were just bigger and and willing to use violence. Ah, like the parents of old. The parents of old were were bigger and and willing to use violence, but justified what they did on the basis of morality. Alice scowls, drumming her fingers on her temple. And this led the children into the enclosures of the rulers, because size and, and, and strength... And violence and and hypocrisy were morality for them, as they had been instructed. Fantastic! Adam clapped his hands, which seemed so old that they should have ejected dust from their palms. Do you want to take a break? Hell no, said Alice in a rare moment of harshness. I feel like I'm just waking up. That's the mark of the bliss, said Adam, seriously. Okay. Imagine that you want to become the greatest thief in the world. One problem you face is that if being a thief is very profitable, more people will want to become thieves. But the more people who become thieves, the more society takes countermeasures against stealing, and the more hazardous and unprofitable the occupation becomes. If you break into someone's house, you might get killed. People create locks and put bars on the windows, and use biometric scans to activate the property, and get dogs and put traces on things. The list is endless. It's a real cat-and-mouse game between property owners and thieves. Plus, it can get kind of exhausting. In the past, you only got about one-tenth of the value of whatever you stole when you tried to sell it. If you needed a hundred dollars a day to live, you had to steal a thousand dollars worth of stuff. Old currency, of course. And that got tiring and risky. To become the greatest thief in the world, you had to convince everyone else that stealing is wrong for them, but that stealing is right for you. Alice said, I feel the urge to say that a scam like that would be far too obvious for everyone, but when I think about being hit as a child, that could really fry your brain, and it would be hard to make sense of anything after that. Adam said, well... Childhood trauma creates physical damage to the brain. Your brain is undamaged, which is why you have such trouble taking modern morality, universally preferable behavior, and applying it to the past. Malnutrition makes people shorter. You can't blame them for that. The brain damage of child abuse, and most things in the past were child abuse, makes people crazy. That is the entire purpose of child abuse. How much can you blame them for that? Hit a robot with a wrench. It goes haywire. Can you blame the programmer? Adam raised his hands. I know, I know. People are not machines. Free will, determinism, I understand. But the reality is that people without self-knowledge kind of are machines. If someone genuinely believes that a question is immoral to even consider... If it is forbidden to their entire 
mental framework, are they free to entertain that question? In some existential, abstract way, we all say yes, resoundingly, but are they in practice free to entertain that question? If a man grows up a foot shorter because he was malnourished as a child, is he free to become a professional basketball player? In the abstract, yes. In the practical, not really. Morality uses trauma to destroy empathy. And without empathy, there is no true morality. Parents hit their children because those parents are too traumatized by being hit themselves to question the virtue of hitting. And you can tell, there is always a tell, when people are traumatized because they have to invent new words. Hitting becomes spanking. Violence becomes punishment. Stealing becomes confiscation. Indoctrination becomes education. Yes, said Adam softly, and indoctrinators become teachers. Alice shuddered, and rulers become protectors. Yes, and every time the rulers became too overbearing, too powerful, and crushed the life out of their societies, people responded with fight or flight, they waged war against their rulers in the form of a revolution, or they fled the region. Both were very primitive responses, which only reinforced the power of violence. Everyone understood that fighting fire with fire only burns the whole world to the ground. The idea that you fight the power of the rulers by rejecting violence against your children was inconceivable to most people. If you raise your children with benevolent and valuable authority, with authority as a resource based on virtue and experience which can help them navigate life better, then you sow the seeds of the modern world, of peaceful and voluntary dispute resolution organizations. They begin to see the world in terms of voluntary contracts, not pretend virtuous brute power. Your father's organization provides value to its customers, who are free to leave at any time. That is the source and sustenance of the value he provides. If you can't leave, nothing can be any good. But children can't really leave the family. Not, not back then, at least before the scans and, and DROs. Adam nodded. But humans are a raise-and-release species. How would, how did people's parenting change when they began to realize that society would no longer force their adult children to interact with them? If you worked for some coercive organization, some violent monopoly, but you knew that in, in a few short years it would be turned over to the free market, what effect would that have on your work ethic, your desire to invest in your human capital, your desire to add real value to your customers. Privatizing the family. Adam looked up sharply. Where did you hear that phrase? 
I don't know, murmured Alice. It just popped into my head. Although my father once told me that DROs were privatizing the law. Adam nodded. It's an old phrase, an old duality. Public meant a centralized coercive monopoly. Private meant a decentralized voluntary interaction. It's like the difference between a stabbing and surgery, or stealing and charity. It's the difference between violence and virtue, vile and voluntary. <laughs> I didn't know you had a habit for alliteration, smiled Alice. Adam laughed. <laughs> Quality and voluntary are two sides of the same coin. The past, everyone knew that no one who worked for the rulers cared about customer service, efficiency, or any kind of satisfaction other than their own greed and power. People who worked for the rulers hated the idea of the free market because, well, who would choose them? In a society where there were forced marriages, moving to voluntary dating was a huge negative to the ugly, the, the, the abusive the generally unappealing. The worst among us always worship violence and monopoly. Again, two sides of the same coin. Because violence and monopoly always produce the worst among us. Violent parenting produced two kinds of people. People cowed and broken into obeying any hypocrite in power. And criminals who would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven, so to speak. The rulers were happy with both kinds. The obedient were obviously good livestock, while the criminals scared the citizens into believing that the rulers were necessary. This system served everyone, except the future, and escalated into the cataclysms, which finally taught humanity the eternal price of breaking children with lies. Alice digested this for a moment. And this is where UPP comes in. Adam nodded. Morality gains its power in the human mind through its universality. Because if we are anything at all, we are conceptual beings. We are naturally drawn to abstract universalizations from science to mathematics to morality. UPB simply accepts the premise of morality, that morality defines universally preferable behavior, and applies it consistently. In the same way, hundreds of years ago, Sir Isaac Newton simply accepted gravity as a constant, and thus understood the universe. Albert Einstein simply accepted the speed of light as a constant, and so understood both the universe and time. The abolitionists ended slavery by universalizing the principle of self-ownership. You could not own yourself and be owned by someone else at the same time. Adam rapidly clicked his teeth with his fingernails, creating a tap-dancing sound. In the old days, there used to be something called an asterisk, which told readers to look at the bottom of the page for additional information, often an exception to a general statement. 
UPB simply takes the simple rules of the non-aggression principle and the respect for property rights, removes the asterisk, the exceptions, and simply universalizes them. Alice laughed out loud. (laughs) Oh, come on, Adam. It can't be that simple. Adam rubbed his face violently with his hands. You may not believe me, but it is. Don't steal. Don't hit. Things a two-year-old was told and punished for disobeying. These rules, which everyone claimed were universal, were simply accepted as universal. Then the most radical transformation of society in the history of the world occurred almost literally overnight. We replaced violence against children with peaceful parenting. We replaced rulers with DROs. We replaced coercive laws with voluntary contracts. And we broke the entire wheel of history. The cycle of violence that has consumed every shred of human success for the past... Forever. Adam's voice dropped to a near whisper. And the amount of human suffering it took to truly universalize morality was so great that we will never, ever give up this advance. Alice digested this. We never got back to the addicted babies. Adam nodded. We will, in particular, because you met two of them on the mountain that night with your friend, and because you will be partly responsible for breaking their addictions. Alice took a deep breath. So, addicted babies? Adam whistled tunelessly and took another sip of tea. Nature has endowed all creatures with a thirst for power, for control, and in the great apes, of which we are the greatest, for dominance over other apes, other members of the tribe. For an ape, dominance means the greatest access to food and shelter, and the greatest access to the highest quality females. I'm sure you are aware that there is a brain component called serotonin, which is a reward chemical. When apes climb higher on the social hierarchy, they are rewarded with serotonin. Conversely, when they tumble down, serotonin is withdrawn, and they get anxious and and depressed. Punishments and rewards, murmured Alice. Excuse me? Alice cleared her throat. throat) Well, you told me that parents in the old world would punish and reward their children for compliance to the parents' wishes. Delusions. And here you have nature as a parent offering sticks and carrots to whip the apes up the social ladder to, to achieve dominance. Right. But nature is not a parent, because nature does not use moral justifications for inflicting punishment. Nature hits us with a straight-up drug deal. (laughs) Mutti, Alice shook her head. Animals need dominance over two things, nature itself and their fellow animals. They need to dominate nature to gain resources, food, shelter, water, and they need to dominate their fellow animals to gain access to the highest quality females. Without reproduction, there's no point to the life of animals and no future for their genetics. So the dominance over nature is merely a means to an end for the dominance over their fellow animals. 
Even frogs fight each other for access to females. And many birds show their dominance over nature by creating elaborate nesting rituals to attract females. It doesn't matter if you can eat, if you can't reproduce. Adam sipped more tea, and Alice couldn't help but wonder where he put it all. It's impossible to take the desire to climb the social hierarchy from apes. The reinforcement mechanism of serotonin is so strong that it dominates even the desire for food and water. When you train them to use currency, the first thing the male apes buy is sexual access to the females. This desire for dominance over other apes is so strong that we consider it a foundational driver of all biology. However, this dominance has its limits. Think of a male ape called Bob. Bob could theoretically impregnate all the female apes by threatening all of the male apes in the vicinity, but he generally doesn't do that. Do you know why? Alice paused, wrinkling her nose, with the usual teen disgust about talk of reproduction. Well, he is outnumbered, Adam nodded. Bob has to sleep sometime. If he tries to shut out all the other males from reproducing, it provokes great rage in them, or rather, great rage is provoked by their genetics, which view a dead end as the worst thing of all. So they band together and kill Bob. Also, as he ages, Bob loses his strength and capacity to dominate. If he has angered the other males too greatly, they will also kill him or drive him out, and therefore he doesn't have the capacity to care for his grandchildren, so to speak. No. Our good, hairy friend Bob is limited in his capacity to dominate the other males, because it is ape-on-ape aggression without any third-party technology or weaponry. To take an extreme hypothetical... Imagine that our friend Bob gets a hold of a solar-powered laser gun and can fry any other ape who displeases him, and that he will train his sons to do the same. Alice blinked. Then there is no limit to what he can do. He can eliminate all the other males and impregnate all the females. And this has been tried by countless animals over the course of evolution. But it really doesn't work out very well. Do you know why? Alice pondered for a long moment, then snapped her fingers. Inbreeding. Adam nodded in satisfaction. Quite right. Too many ape babies are born with birth defects, which makes the females depressed and anxious about mating, and also drains resources, because they will still feed their unviable offspring, which cannot grow to protect the tribe and hunt or reproduce, for that matter. Therefore, any other tribe with more genetic diversity can take them over or drive them away from the good food sources. Dominant apes with too much power over reproduction destroy their societies. Power, in other words, corrupts. Alice scowled. I really appreciate the lesson, but I'm not sure if you're aware of how smug you sound when you do that. The knowledge has come full circle, Zen routine. Adam grinned. When the mentor is good enough, the student can survive a little smugness. (laughs) Even when defending your smugness, you are smug. My dad does the same thing. We call it smugging. The old man laughed. (laughs) Just my way of making light of some truly terrible aspects of human history. The most terrible, many think, myself included. His face grew serious. An excess of power destroys the tribe. A deficiency of power stagnates the tribe. A central question about apes is 
Why did they never develop as much intelligence as humans? The answer, of course, is that greater intelligence is not rewarded among the apes. Another way of putting it is, the female apes prefer violence and size over intelligence and wisdom, which means that the apes remain violent and stay dumb. Alice frowned. Is that because greater intelligence doesn't provide any specific evolutionary value? Adam shook his head. That's far too general a statement to be of value. Why doesn't intelligence provide evolutionary value for the apes? Because, um, because growing the brain means, well, there are only a certain number of calories available, and, and, and if the brain becomes bigger, the body usually becomes smaller. Adam smiled. Thus, we have the stereotype of the nerdy geek who is bad at sports. His body has poured its energy into growing his brain at the expense of his size and muscles and coordination. Conversely, the stereotype of the giant dumb jock also has its basis in reality, for the opposite reason but the same principle. Alice said, So the ape who develops a larger brain, or at least a smarter brain, I know the correlation isn't perfect, is smaller and weaker in his body, which means that he is rejected by the females. Adam nodded. Right. The females are looking for markers of the ability to provide resources. And being smarter might make a male better at getting resources, but that remains only theoretical. Physical size and strength are valuable now. To turn to humans, in colder climates, intelligence is essential to gather, store, and slowly measure out food during the hungry winter months. So strong but dumb men are rejected by females because it's a higher likelihood that everyone will starve to death over the winter with those men as heads of the family. Alice said, But uh, that's only in a time of peace. Adam's eyes sharpened. Go on. Well, women want men big, dumb and violent during times of war, rights, which tends to perpetuate war. All personality traits are subject to genetics. Violent societies tend to stay violent because the genes for violence help with survival. Starting one war changes the genetics forever. War never ends, murmured Alice. All wars are gene wars, said Adam grimly. The genes for violence wage war against the genes for intelligence. He put down his cup. When women choose smarter men, society becomes more intelligent. There is no shortcut, no other way to do it. Because men will do anything to gain the approval of women. The alternative is genetic death. Now, when you have a coercive social structure collective moral delusion, really, called the state. That's the equivalent of giving Bob the ape a laser gun. Many animals don't know when things are too much. Some birds prefer larger eggs, but if you give them an egg larger than their whole body, an ostrich egg, say, they will sit on that, because their brains don't have a cutoff for too much. Human beings are the same with power, particularly power over other human beings. You can think of all the major empires throughout human history, dozens and dozens of them, and they all crashed 
because the rulers kept wanting more and more power. Human beings don't have a cutoff for too much power. Or at least human beings who do have that cutoff don't seek or, or keep power as rulers. The natural limit to human dominance is blowback from the subjugated, just as the excluded male apes will kill the dominant male. Trying to dominate other humans creates the certain risk of blowback. However, with the apparatus of the state, a ruler faces no immediate or individual limit to his thirst for dominance. A Roman ruler can conquer the known world. A British monarch can rule over a third of the entire planet. Of course, you could never do this individually. But if you, have, if you pay your enforcers a portion of the money they extract from others through violence then you can dominate as much as your heart desires. And when it comes to dominance, the human heart has infinite desires. This is even a founding principle of economics, that human desires are infinite, but resources are always finite. How much power do rulers want when there is no blowback? Infinite, no limits, or at least the limits accrue intergenerationally. This is the classic pattern of the addict. We all want power over nature, over each other, and here in the modern world we have turned that power lust into technological control over the natural world and and sports and debates and other forms of dominance combat that don't result in death, either of individuals or of our entire society. Towards the end, before the cataclysms, especially in the democracies, this addiction reached its inevitable peak. The mental constructs designed to limit the growth of sociopathic control by the rulers, various laws and and bills and, and constitutions, proved as useful as the promise of an addict who always says, only one more, only one more. Adam's face was as hard as stone. Power grows, in part, out of hatred. Hatred is necessary because you never want to rule over someone you truly love because that would destroy the free will that you love them for. When you gain power, you gain sycophants, adherents, and enforcers. When people sense a growing power in society, their first instinct is to submit because the purpose of power is to destroy those who don't submit. You have to hate those you rule over. You have to view them as subhuman and yourself as superhuman so that you can destroy them without disturbing your conscience. It's an instinct. You mentally divide human beings into the good, those who support your rule, and the evil, those who oppose your rule. You subvert the remnants of the law. You create arbitrary punishments, which fill your subjects with existential dread. And then you harvest all that anxiety and dread and blame the disobedient. Then, of course, because human beings seek power and hate helplessness, the helplessness and powerlessness generated by the rulers is then aimed at the disobedient. And the frightened attack the non-compliant. And no one and nothing is then left to resist the expansion of the power of the rulers, except the inevitable collapse, the destruction of society, the cataclysms, Adam's eyes were hooded, and he almost panted with the exertion of his speech. 
And, he whispered so softly that Alice had to lean forward to hear him, when the rulers have power over all the words poured into the ears of the children, the creative fairy tale, a horror story, wherein all the disasters created by the rulers are blamed on the disobedient, and that all manner of disasters await the society if even a tiny minority disobeys. This programs the children to gain serotonin not from dominance, but obedience, and programs them to be hit with the twin horrors of anxiety and depression, not from subjugation, but from disobedience. And when human beings are programmed this way, they become addicted to slavery, literally addicted, and will fight to the death to remain enslaved. Freedom, liberty, conscience, these all become predators to be kept at bay with all their might. People mistake totalitarianism as a top-down system. Oh, no. It is not the rulers attacking the citizens. It is the rulers programming the citizens to attack each other if they disobey the rulers. Enslavement is not top-down. Enslavement is horizontal. Horizontal slavery is the only slavery that can ever exist because the slaves so vastly outnumber the rulers. Social slavery exists when slaves experience terror only when another slave resists enslavement. When the rulers use the state to program their slaves to attack any freedom lovers, there is no escape from slavery except total collapse, which, for most slaves, results in death. And this was the cycle of human history. Inevitable, inexorable, inescapable. Human beings cannot handle power any more than a drug addict can handle the drug. We are programmed to be infinitely addicted to more and more power. It is never enough. It never satisfies. It always expands until it collapses. The history of our species is the history of the mad delusion that an infinite addiction can be restrained with pieces of paper and and make concepts. It is the history of people who turn the education of their children over to their rulers and then wonder why their freedoms continually disappear. It is the history of a species of our species, who continually repeat the mantra that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and yet keep handing more and more power to their rulers, and wonder why they wander from disaster to catastrophe to horror to the cataclysms. Alice's eyes were filled with tears. But Are they to be blamed? They were addicts trained from birth to... to, I don't even know how to put it. You, You put it well, of course. Can babies born to addiction be blamed for being addicts? 
Adam pursed his lips. That is a very interesting question. It is not at all theoretical. What what do you mean? asked Alice, confused. Are, Are you talking about the few remaining rulers? Adam shook his head. Oh no, I'm talking about the rulers to come. Alice's face went pale. You said, you almost promised that we have broken the cycle of history, that the cataclysms will never come again, Adam said. I did make that promise, and I will keep that promise, or rather society will. But the rulers are coming back, because we are going to bring them back to life.